Hello everybody, I'm your host Nazarbina and this is the Omnichannel podcast brought to you by Omnichannel X, where we interview leading minds in content design, governance and systems from around the world. If you like this episode, remember to like and subscribe on whatever channel you're using and check out omnichannelx.digital for more info on our annual conference, blog and mailing list for exclusive offers and content. Now enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I am very. I am Nazarbina. Uh, I am your host for the day and program director of the Omnichannel X conference and uh, and podcast. I have with me today uh, Mariah Obajinski, senior director of content services for Staymates. Hi, Naz. Hi there. Hi, Mariah. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you. Uh, Mariah was uh, uh, top rank 50 influential women. Uh, in marketing, and also a uh, three-time CM world speaker, uh, and who has quite an interesting background and, uh, and recognized expertise in our space. So without any further ado, I am going to pass over now and start introducing you to our guest speaker for the day, Mariah. Please, can you introduce yourself to, to our audience and tell them a little bit about, uh, about what you do? Sure. As, as Naz mentioned, I'm Mariah Obajenski. I'm the Senior Director of Content Services at Staymates. We are a fully functional end-to-end marketing services agency, primarily working in the education, healthcare, and B2B space. So we cover all the bases. Oh, wow. um, right now, I manage a team of content strategists and writers. We create functional, thoughtful web content, which includes content marketing, blogs, podcasts, social, static web content, you name it. What brought you into this, uh, into this area? Well, I spent a lot of years as a marketing assistant and really enjoyed that, helping to create and deliver the, the content that we would get from our clients, both internal and external. I spent a lot of time in the healthcare space several years before transitioning to more of a leadership role. And in that capacity, I led several teams that created enterprise content for mostly academic medical centers around the U.S., mm-hmm. um, you know, I wanted to really diversify, get into a kind of a new challenge. So Staymates really offered that opportunity for me to expand outside of healthcare into that B2B and ed space, as well as the retail market. Um, I found, you know, over time, they're, they're wildly different markets, but there's a lot of crossover opportunity, a lot of similar yeah. channels, just kind of a different way that people use them. Uh, I think that's something we we often get a little bit too stuck on is is imagining that each each industry is 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 so unique. When if you do work in big agencies or you do have a diverse background, uh, you, there's so much commonality, and we have a lot more to learn from each other than than there is that it's different. Mm-hmm, absolutely, absolutely, and you know, especially in that user experience space, and in terms of call to action, uh, how people get from point A to point B, their preferences, whether whether that's which channels they want to use, whether that's video or text, you know, audio or video, whatever it might be, there is so much that's different between just the the industry or the vertical that you work in, but the demographics of your audience, you know, age, gender, all of those things. And then those, just the, just the journeys that are so, so different, but so unique, you know, for example, healthcare, there's a very specific journey that people use, you know, when they're researching who is going to take care of me, who's going to take care of my children, as opposed to, you know, am I going to buy this type of sneaker or that type of sneaker? It's, it's different, but a lot of the same decisions have to be made just at different points and different levels of, of importance. Yeah, I think that's a, the, 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 the research one is a great example. Um, you know, option comparison, uh, 
you know, taking on a complex product, regardless of what kind of product it is. Uh, mm. There's a lot of commonality there. So um, speaking of commonality uh, and in, in the space, it, where do you think uh, organizations should focus their attention now um, for, for the greatest long-term payoff? There's so many challenges that are coming out in the market uh, in, that, that are presented by the omnichannel, changing uh, market expectations, more technically literate customers. In terms of methodology and skills, uh, where should people in user experience, marketing, content marketing generally, where should we be putting our, putting our uh, focus? That's a really good question. I think, I think really it comes down to the ability to listen to your audiences, to listen to your colleagues internally and externally and really connect with people and forge relationships. That might sound like kind of a soft answer, but it really encompasses a lot of the work that we do in marketing and public relations and sales and just about every branch that an agency or a vendor would work with. You know, live events, content marketing, digital experiences on the site, that user pathway, just really the ability to listen to what your audiences are doing, what they're wanting from you, what they're asking before they can have the chance to ask it or before they're forced to ask you. Being able to be proactive, you know, really knowing them and then translating those findings into real applications. So keeping that relevance, uh, keeping that user experience top notch at every point that you can will really drive that brand stickiness and that loyalty, generating even more positive sentiment over time. Well, first of all, I want to comment on the on the um, relationships being a touchy feely thing. Um, you know, as as a as the program director for a conference that has specifically uh, set its mission to uh, improve the the brand audience relationship at scale, uh, I I I I want to put put my hand on my heart and say that I completely agree there that that is central to to moving forward in a better way. I think mm-hmm. relationships with any institutions these days are are delicate things, uh, and maintaining trust. And building and maintaining trust are, are, are essential in, the, in those relationships. Um, you, you said some also some things about uh, that's kind of put an emphasis on research, um, mm-hmm. both research and continuous monitoring is what I got out of what you were saying. Are there particular mm-hmm. kind of methods for how you get how you how do you listen from like uh, how do you listen? How, when you talk about that, are there particular methodologies or or processes which you're you're seeing taking on that are helping? Yeah, so I, I guess I would bucket that into to three chunks, and two of them people are, are probably very familiar with, and the third is a little bit newer. But the first two is just, you know, being out there, being in front of your brand. So in our, across all of the verticals that Staymates works in, we are always out there at conferences. We're always at on-site visits with our clients. We do a lot of networking events where we're getting in and we're mixing around with people. You know, what are you looking for? It's, it's not always to drive sales. It's really to just connect with our audience and say, what are you looking for? What are we giving you that you enjoy? What are we not giving you that you need? And just having those face-to-face conversations. I think another opportunity really is is that touch point people don't always think about digitally just asking. You know, we do a lot of surveys with our audience, just keeping them very short, one to two minutes. And it's always optional. You don't have to like, you know, sell your soul to Google to, to get information and to give information. But we always ask. I mean, just the worst that people can do is not respond. And so that's that's telling in itself. But, you know, the third thing is is social listening. 
that is really critical for agencies' success and for vendor partners' success. It's just crowdsourcing that user-generated information. It's not creepy. It's not weird. It's things that people are just saying out into the social atmosphere in that public space. But the ability to gather all of that information and really drill it down to what matters to the segments that you're looking at, whether it's prospective students, whether it's individuals in a certain industry, whether it's buyers at a certain point in the user funnel, you can use that data to proactively connect with your audience and really increase your credibility in the space. But more importantly, you know, as you alluded to earlier, give those users and give those potential users an opportunity to have a really great experience with your brand. I'm fascinated. So social listening, uh, I, I think, is, is uh, especially for enterprise customers, which is you know, the ones I'm most familiar with, uh, is a big one, um, and, and online surveys. But I'm, actually, it's the first one I was most interested when you say actually kind of face-to-face, is it like almost informal contact, just li- literally like, because there's a lot of philosophy around uh, the human beings in the brand representing the brand. So you're, mm-hmm. you're actually getting out there and making like human to human contact. We do. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a B2B arm of our business and a lot of the functionality that goes into that is being out at conferences, being out at trade shows. We host a lot of hosted buyer events where we're actually inviting individuals in the industry and individuals that are, you know, third party sales or distributors to come and and do um, speed networking. It's almost like speed dating where we partner them up one-on-one. They can just sit and have conversations together we can come in and have conversations as well, but we're really there as the host. We're really mm-hmm. there as the the friendly liaisons. You know, we're not trying to sell them anything. We're not trying to, um, you know, butt into their conversations. We just want to help people make those connections. And, you know, if we, if we were remembered as the group that helps them make those connections, all the better for it. I have not heard an agency like that using those kind of techniques before, uh, mm-hmm. honestly. So I think that's great. Um, I, I really love it. The fact that you're doing the human touch like that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, what technologies uh, are becoming or do you think will become more viable for the medium to large enterprise that should be high on our list to be exploring? I think anything that has an algorithmic component, and I say that, you know, take that with a grain of salt because in a lot of articles and a lot of studies have been coming out in the last six months or so that really talk about bias and inherent bias that goes mm-hmm. into the creation of these algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in anything that is human made, you're going to have some sort of bias. I think using platforms like Sprout Social, using platforms like HubSpot that give you the opportunity to mass, uh, mass gather data is, is really a wonderful tool that people can use, but it should be used as a guideline and not mm-hmm. necessarily indicative of everything that's happening. You know, there are a lot of segments out there in our population that are underserved or that might not mm-hmm. be represented as much. And then it also comes back to the teams that are distilling that data. So when we work with data like that, when we work with things that our audience team gives us or our research team gives us, we try to create a, a very diverse internal panel as well. So we have men come in, we have women come in, we have people of color come in, we have just you know different age groups come in and look at this data from our, from our own company, of course, and say, what do you take away from this personally? What's your idea mm. about this personally? And just really try to get as holistic as we can a view of that data before we go and report back to the client, um, you know, especially because we work with clients all across the country in the U.S. Our, our population here is so diverse. It's just very important to have all of those points of view considered and represented in that data. If you're interested in how we balance that, 
um, data versus um, getting through the bias, um, blind spots in the data, um, turning people too much into numbers rather than people. Then one of the, pre the, the previous sessions, we've recorded two actually uh, with Gina uh, Ballerin and she's uh, like specialized in that area and she had some really cool things to say about how, um, how personas that we develop are maybe a little bit inadequate because they become demographic data snapshots rather than talking about real human motivations mm -hmm. um, and how uh, you need a balance between real research and the kind of human stuff that, you, that you're doing um, at Staymates uh, versus the, the data, data informed. Uh, and I think, I think we're, there's a big enthusiasm for the, uh, everything algorithmic and everything automatic, but we, you know, we're realizing that it's not there yet. We're not, in a, we're not in a position to be throwing our jobs over to the machines quite yet. Oh yeah, and a couple of years ago at a conference that I spoke at and attended the the rest of the sessions, much of the conversation was that nervousness about oh AI is going to come in, it's going to take all our jobs. But I think the way I look at it is, is it's going to give us, it's going to take away some of that administrative process of distilling information or, you know, gathering that information and giving us more time as human beings with our own emotions and our own backgrounds and perspectives to really distill it out and make sense of it as opposed to spending all of those hours just gathering it and then having to rush that analysis portion. There's so much grunt work still, even if, you, mm -hmm. even if you're a, like a, a high-level professional today in a, in, in a job, you know, con content professional, there's so much junk we've got to do mm -hmm. to get everything together to be able to think. Um, and uh, I think anyone can identify. It's not enough, like who has an excess of that time where you're able to, to, to think and reflect? Oh, yeah. And we're finding even with our interns, we have a lot of students that come to us in college and want to, you know, get into marketing and omnichannel marketing. You know, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, we might have had them pushing paper. Well, now we have them doing, you know, alongside of us, of course, but working very closely with us on parallel strategies and, you know, helping, helping us distinguish, you know, what does this mean from your age, from your perspective as, as an individual at this point in your life and help having them help us not just um, post things and publish things and, you know, gather mm -hmm. reports, but really get in there and get involved. And I think it's a crucial thing for students, for, you know, people young in their career and people older in their career too, to always have that curiosity to learn and always look at data differently, no matter where it's coming from. Mm, that's, that's great. It's, it's value. It's value added work as opposed to non-value added work. Mm -hmm. So um, other thing about the, the AI and content uh, is that a if anyone's scared of AI is taking a job, you can always remember that any intelligence, whether artificial or organic, has to learn from something. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be a demand for content because the the all these all these intelligences which are being created, they need to be able to ingest sensible structured content uh, so that they can make sense of the world. Um, and mm -hmm. so that if you are in content or designing content or something, uh, user experiences, I think there's still quite a lot uh, that these new um, artificial consumers will still need from us. Oh, definitely. And there's so many tools that can put together a baseline of an article or a baseline of a piece for you, you know, outline it, grab information mm -hmm. off, off of the universe and put it together into something simple and generic. Well, anybody could do that. You know, anybody on your staff could do that, whether they're a content strategist or not. 
But when you use the power of AI and you use those tools to create those baselines, you can see what everybody else is doing. I mean, that's what it's mm. grabbing. And then you can make that information your own, whether that's incorporating people in your audience to, to put in their input, whether that's just taking it and finessing it and adding your own data. But it gives you the opportunity to, to see what people are doing out there in the world and differentiate yourself from that. And that's, I guess that's why I'm not nervous about AI taking my job by any means, because everything that is human to human ultimately needs that human touch before it can be uh, effective. Uh, that's all like all great stuff that you know that will help us move forward. What do you think, conversely, is holding us back from preparing properly? What do you what are you seeing as a, as a recurring anchor that's that's holding up in the past? Yeah, I mean, small to large, the clients that we work with across all the industries have always come to us with one concern, that these programs that they can use to get that sort of data, or even the CMS programs for some co companies are just cost prohibitive. They can't, oh. they can't afford the license year to year. They might be able to afford it once, but that doesn't do them any good in you know 2025 or 2030. So we've found a lot of success in kind of a co-marketing approach. So as a corporation, as, a, as an agency, we are able to offer our clients access to some of those tools. We foot the license, we take care of all of that, and we can help them access the power of those tools without them having to pay for that license on their own, especially because so many organizations don't have that sort of um, specialist in, on staff to really know how to use all of the functionalities there. We provide all of that for them and just mm -hmm. kind of share. So, you know, we can help them with their the financial aspect and they help us by sharing their different fresh perspectives that allows us to use that to really bring out the creativity in their project and make it super unique for them. That's an interesting approach. So just by offering a, a wider, both technology and humans and consultative service, uh, you're getting over what you, what you perceive to be one of the, the biggest hurdles. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It kind of covers two hurdles, I guess. I, I think I find it fascinating. You know, I, um, I'm a little bit biased in my perspective because I tend to work with the larger companies, but I do look at the price tags for some of these systems and it makes your eyes roll back in your head. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just license, you know, implementation and configuration are then can be a couple times that. Mm -hmm. So it, these, these brands are spending, uh, there's definitely a market, you know, we, there's definitely need, um, I always wonder whether the the brands who are investing are are getting the value out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and and we've found that you know the value, the cost, the price tag of these programs is well worth it if you have the staffing and if you mm -hmm. have that expertise. So we've worked with several agencies that have larger staffs than ours that that are just like, nope, we're good, we've got it, and we're like great and we can learn from them sometimes but the majority of of organizations just don't have that kind of budget so if we can kind of share across it just makes it all the more uh you know better of an experience for everybody the outcomes are better yeah i i i cannot say you know and uh that i have seen many organizations who are even getting half the value out of their mm -hmm. out of what their systems can do and these are you know the the, the top top end systems global brands and they're like they're they're highly capable theoretically but they're using it to you know load web pages mm -hmm. <laughs> or or just do some very basic personalization based on some very kludgy parameters nothing sophisticated nothing that's really worth all of that investment that they made mm-hmm 
tools like Marketo, we, we use Marketo a lot and we love mm -hmm. it. And we love all of the functionality and the data that it mines. It's just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. But we've seen organizations that have invested in similar programs and they're sending, you know, onesie twosie emails. And it's just kind of a uh, heartbreaking, I guess, from that perspective, like, oh, you, you are spending a lot for this and it is so worthwhile, but you have to have that expertise to really drive those strategies. And a lot of the time when we're working with groups, we're not necessarily doing the work for them. We're really working on a consultative basis where we can teach them some of the ways that they can use their programs that they've already invested in. They're already, you know, quote, stuck with for some time and help them get more out of it. Kind of got an amen because I, yeah. I, it's really, uh, I, I find it, uh, uh, a frustration when you go into a client when you can see that the, the agencies have created uh, intentionally created dependency. Mm -hmm. Oh, you need this, you need this, and you need this, and now how are you going to pay for it? Oh, you know, we'll be here, we'll help you. And yeah. that is just not a friendly approach. Yeah, no, I, f I think the intentionally keeping the client ignorant so that you can continue billing is, is just not a, in the long term, they're going to realize what's going on and even if it's 10 years or something i don't know mm -hmm. i just don't think it's, it's the way not going to end well for you <laughs> yeah it's not going to well it's not going to end well for the brand uh mm -hmm. I, I just uh, so I, i'm glad to hear an agency saying that um so i want to talk about some of the bugbears which i see and i want to know if you're seeing them because they also uh i'm also picking up on some of the repeating issues that i've had on some of the other podcasts uh particularly personas has been coming up and uh I, you do a lot of diverse work a lot of di different types of, of uh organization and do you work with many departments within those organizations we do a lot of the time so pr and communications and a lot of our groups are are separate entities which has kind of always been mind-boggling to me with the journalism background but we found there's a lot of miscues there's a lot of uh, lack of communication between those groups and so we work with kind of like a, a liaison, I guess, between the different parties. And that works out really nicely for us, especially when we're doing a large uh, full web redesign project with a client, which can get super heated and super political. But mm -hmm. we oftentimes will serve as kind of the liaison, the friendly neutral, the but the authoritative, you know, this is what has been decided, you know, globally between multiple different organizations. So PR communications, IT, design and development, just for starters. Mm -hmm. Then you get into the upper level stakeholders, the C-suite and so forth. But it has to start from the top is what we found and that trickle down has to occur before anybody can really feel good about communicating their wants and needs back and forth and then really having those tough discussions about what's necessary versus what's just nice to have. So when you say it's got to come from top down, uh, for me, that's a governance uh, concern. Mm -hmm which has to do with, do we have the structure in place? Do we have the buy-in in place? And do we have the clear uh, accountability in place so that people are aware this is happening, you know, we're going this direction, there is a strategy, and you're part of it. So mm -hmm. any questions or concerns, do, do the following. Um, mm -hmm. I find that that's very, very difficult to come by. Um, and that a lot of organizations are still trying to fight kind of a grassroots up because yep. the user experience or content or design or any of the things that we, you know, that we talk about at the, at the conference, they're still not, except for, not, I'm not going to say unicorn because it's, it's better than that. It's better than it was 10 years ago. But there's still a lot of organizations who just don't see that as their business. They see their business as 
I don't know, making widgets, selling this kind of service, whatever. And all of this extra experience-y, content-y stuff is a, a cost, like they have to pay for plumbing and, or the building, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. are, you, are you seeing like a, a, a positive shift in that uh, top-down awareness and buy-in? Yeah, we really are. And I think a lot of it is to do with, you know, the availability of more data. So oftentimes when we go into an organization, whether it's a hospital or a manufacturer or a a college or a university, we get that as our first line of defense. You know, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And this is what we want to talk about. So when we can show data that says, you know, okay, we can try that but here's what's going to happen. And we do some testing and we bring to them, you know, this type of content or this design that is very org centric or organization centric has, you know, very little effect. You're not getting the conversions you expected. You're not getting the engagement, but when you show them the B test, the, the very user focused, the audience focused content design development cues, and they can see that big shift where people are engaging because they're getting what's in it for them. They're getting that information they need that really has allowed us to come in stronger and have a better baseline to say, okay, this is the best business decision, not just, haha, we win. Like, you know, agencies <laughs> might have in the past, you know, we know this is a best practice because, well, now we can show this is the best practice because this is what your audience is reacting to. Yeah. I think the, I think that's great. I think that the, we do have more ability to and rapidly and, and not as expensively as we would have to year, years ago um, do that kind of proof case mm-hmm. um, on the the other side I'm playing devil's advocate and the pessimist is in me is saying the kind of people who hire people like you and me are the ones who already have a minimum of ma- a minimum of management buy-in or else they wouldn't have even gotten the funding to go that far um, oh, so exactly. I'm always yeah I always have this kind of question in the back of my mind um, so I want I, I need to get more more brands on the on the podcast and ask them how they're feeling, uh, they're feeling us. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically, I mentioned personas, um, a bugbear for me, I don't know if people use the term bugbear in North America, but, uh, uh, something that makes me crazy is mm-hmm. the personas cropping up like mushrooms personas like created on a per project basis or a per agency basis. Are you seeing examples where personas are being shared and maintained over time across departments, campaigns, and projects? Or are are you still seeing them as a campaign-level asset? That's a really interesting question. And I'm going to kind of give you a wishy-washy answer, Naz. I think that for certain industries and certain audiences, you're going to have that baseline. So in 2020, when we're working with higher ed agencies, there are certain things on the prospective student in, you know, audience, wherever you are in the U.S., wherever you are, perhaps mm-hmm. abroad too, uh, that are just going to be, that are just going to be the same regardless. So the so age like will industry be the same. Level yeah, the, okay. the industry stuff will be the same. But when you mm-hmm. get down to the regional and the community and what that particular institution's goals are is when it gets more granular. So you can start with that generic, but you do have to kind of build out to that personal level. Uh, with the group that you're working with. And we are mm-hmm. really lucky here at Staymates to have a research group and mm-hmm. an audience group that does nothing but work on that brand level. They mm-hmm. work on the national and organizational level as well and, and distilling all of that data down into actionable things that make sense for that specific organization. We Sometimes we'll take it down to the campaign level. It just really depends on 
what that goal is and, and, you know, the tenure of the project and all of that. But we want them to be able to walk away with something that they can use for a year, two years, three years going forward and not just focus all of their investment on this one project. Okay. That's for me, that's the the thing that makes me a little bit nuts is that if, if we consider personas to be just for the project, then it's, it's as if who we're talking to changes on a, on a project to project basis, which it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, our audience is our audience they may have relationships with us for years, decades. Um, and so this, I, I'm seeing the same group of people, like the same team in this, doing the same function, just different project happen to kick it off with a different agency, maybe, or kick it off with a different internal team and new personas. Who are we talking mm-hmm. to again? As, as if, as if your brand uh, brand customer relationship has a reset because yeah. you want you want to launch something or you want to you want to do a redesign or you want to do a campaign and that I think that's the kind of thing that makes people feel um, dropped you know mm-hmm. that they're not that their relationship isn't real is that oh, I agree techniques like that have bad habits we have of new campaign new personas uh, so I'm I'm beating the drum about trying to get this uh, going. So I'm, I'm glad that you're, that you're trying to make persona something that persists rather than a throwaway thing like a, like a wireframe or, or, or a first draft. Oh yeah. And any agency that's worth their salt will always ask whether existing brand work is available. So you're mm-hmm. not using their resources for that project to go back and do work they've already done. You're not going to frustrate their stakeholders in that regard. You're not going to waste your team's time when, when things have been done already. So of course we'll go back and vet it and see if it makes sense to us, if there's anything that should be added based on our cumulative experience. But a mm-hmm. lot of the time we can just pick up right where that agency left off, maybe make some tweaks and then push forward on the next initiative. I don't know if I'm fully in line with your estimation of the uh, of the average agency because <laughs> I I've, I do I do see some shocking practices out there, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I I I, um, I support the sentiment. I hope that <laughs> I hope that more agencies do take that that perspective. Okay, so I wanted to ask. Come, so we talked about personas, um, customer journey mapping. That's another thing that I know was very popular at last year's conference. Um, some people call it experience mapping, user journey mapping. Is that a technique that you're, that you're using for, for content and experience design? It is. We start all of our projects that way. And we've just found that it's the best way to internally get our teams on the right footing before we dive in. But externally, absolutely. It's the best way for our, our, clients that we work with, our partners that we work with to really tell us if we're on the mark with who we're talking to, what that audience's challenges are, and the pathways and channels that they need and that they prefer to get to that business Mm -hmm. goal that our client has set. So we walk through all of the different ways. For example, on a content marketing project, which is kind of the world that I live in, uh, we work through all the different ways that somebody might get to that landing page or that ad. You know, they might be clicking through a site about XYZ topic and just land on a native ad. They might be receiving an email from us or a paid social post from us and coming that way. It's not always through that front door that clients like to think, you know, this is the process we have in our mind and that's what's going to happen. There are so many back doors that you have to account for. And the journey mapping is really a great exercise to help them understand that and help them get comfortable with that. I, yeah, I like to use the term backdoor. Um, I, I, I like the, I've had clients use the term to my face, j- just show me the happy path. 
Uh-huh. And I'm going, nah, well, no, because if we just design for the happy path, then when someone's not on the happy path, we'll be totally unprepared to support them. Yep, so, and you're alienating them, really, if you're not out there in that space where they are, ex- where they're not maybe expecting that message, but they need it and they don't know mm-hmm. that they need it. You're really leaving them out and doing a disservice if you're not accounting for that. Absolutely. I think, I think that uh, uh, journey mapping as let's paint the ideal journey that we want to shove customers along is misusing the technique. Absolutely. So there's, um, you know, and, the, and uh, the, the fantasy, the journeys are always linear. Like you don't fail, um, you know, you don't mess up and have to go back and start again or, or get stuck. Uh, like the, 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 um, the journey mapping that, that's, that you, as you're describing it, where you're taking those edge cases and going, well, what if mm-hmm. that's, that's where you can find out whether your content, whether your design is really robust. There's so many touch points for for digital users today. We're we're a very savvy organization, you know, organization or population or audience. No matter if you're 20 or if you're 15 or if you're 45, you know what you want sometimes, but sometimes you don't. And you're going to do a lot of research before you invest your time and you invest your money into a certain organization or a product. Mm-hmm. You're going to spend that time looking at it. Could be seven, it could be ten touch points before you pull that trigger and decide to convert whatever that conversion looks like. Absolutely. And then there's also the post sales, uh, journeys. So there's, mm-hmm. um, actually I, I, we did not work cause we're talking about content marketing and marketing. Um, do you do a, like, uh, quite a lot of the, for example, building up of audience, uh, building advocacy, long-term brand relationship, or is it kind of mainly pushing towards some sort of conversion? We do. Absolutely. We call it demand generation. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of that build up up front. We do all of the implementation throughout and you know, partnering with our, our clients. And then that last section, the lead nurturing, the ongoing relationship is really mm-hmm. our, our bread and butter. We love that part Excellent. because it means our client gets more and more out of that audience and not just, you know, exploiting them. I don't, I don't want to sound like we're just, you know, hammering these audiences. We're giving them what they've told us that they want, what they've told us that they need and what helps mm-hmm. them down the line. Absolutely. So my, uh, my one sentence, uh, definition of content marketing is, uh, marketing that has its own value proposition. Yes. I love it. I love it. Thank you. So, uh, the, the, I, I, when I'm talking to a true content marketer, uh, like yourself, who, who, who's realizing that this is not about advertising, but delivering value so that we're building something over the longer term, because then you're creating a win-win and that's how you build a sustainable long-term ROI model. Mm-hmm. And I think this is how you know that you've been in your career for over a decade, because when I started out in content marketing, we didn't have any tools really to show ROI. It was always just, you know, this is future facing in five years, they'll thank us and, you know, <laughs> smile and handshake. And now, you know, a decade later, 15 years later, we have the ability to show that long-term data and say, well, look how this has worked for you. Taking that opportunity to really reach out to your audience in these ways that they want you to reach out to them, giving them that ongoing t- in information that evergreen touch point has really benefited you and it will continue in the future. We can give them that real time data. Can you give me an example about, uh, metrics and how, how you, what, how do you demonstrate ROI? That's, that's, uh, there's lots of people who can do it. There's lots of people who are going, I don't know. I still don't know how to demonstrate ROI on content or experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can give you uh, an example from a client that we worked with last year. Um, this was a commercial lighting distributor. So they're a great, a great big manufacturer that ships lighting products all over the U.S. They ran with us an omni-channel campaign. Um, it was both print and digital, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, their campaign was, you know, centered around this downloadable white paper. It was a Gartner report. Uh, we did podcasts with them, email outreach to their target audience, which was facility managers and commercial building owners, kind of a really niche audience that we focus intently on with our buildings uh, publication and buildings.com. So we were able to reach out across several channels, social media, you know, print, digital, all of that good stuff. It was really successful. We were able to increase their ROI by 800% just about wow. for uh, sales-ready leads because with their previous group, the, the campaigns were less targeted. They were just kind of running that generic pump and dump sort of a, a campaign. Whereas we were looking in, digging in, taking that content marketing thought leadership approach mm -hmm. and helping them push things out that our audience that we know a lot about has asked us for, you know, over time, has engaged with this type of content over time and has shown us on social that they're sharing it, they're engaging with it. And so in large part due to that segmentation and, and their willingness to really put themselves out there as, yes, we are the experts in this and we are the thought leaders, their outcome was incredible. You mentioned the, you know, the, the, yeah, I think you said blogging or podcast or something. So did you add, did you add channels to the mix that they hadn't been using? We did. Yeah. They, they had not historically been doing a lot on social. They had not historically done podcasts. So they, they're fortunate in that one of their leaders is really comfortable writing and they are a really great writer. We were just oh, wow. able to go in with their articles that some of wow. them were pre-written, some of them were new but optimize them a little bit for SEO, optimize them a little bit for social, just based on our data from our audience and really help increase the visibility of that through our distribution channels. But it, it all starts with their expertise. I mean, we could write about things till we were blue in the face, but they're the ones that really know. And that's what our readers want to hear from. We're just, we, we view ourselves kind of as the conduit to get these highly successful people connected with the people that want their information. Conduit was the word that was on the tip of my tongue. That's really interesting. Um, so I want to zoom in on the on the omnichannel bit, of course, because I you know that's that's my job. What well, the way we define omnichannel is essentially the 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 fact that the channels are are collaborative rather than parallel. You know, then you're not you're not just running a blog and some social and some print. Um, the what do you do in terms of encouraging the channels to come together? You know. Um, in encouraging people who pick up the print to go to listen to the blog, et cetera, et cetera. Have you, have you seen and have you got any stories of before and afters or improvement over the years where you have been upping your game in terms of really creating a holistic omnichannel experience versus simply going out on multiple channels? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I think podcast is a great example. Um, you know, five years ago or so, maybe I'm dating myself here a little bit, but podcast wasn't really a, a cool thing. People were nervous about it. They, they thought it was a highly produced thing that was really difficult. And I'm not saying that it's easy, but you and I are, are right here, you know, doing this right now over over the internet. And it's 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 easy when you think about it in that regard. But a few years ago, that wasn't the case. And so now, just within the last five years, we have taken our clients and, and helped them get comfortable with it to a point where not only can we share out podcasts in the traditional fashion, so using tools like Anchor that pump it out across, you know, Pocket Play, Google Play, all of those things, but incorporating those podcast pieces into 
uh, print pieces even. So we're able to just put a link into a print piece. If you want to hear more about this, go to this link and then you can listen to this while you're commuting. Uh, we can put it out through email and it's, it's the same thing. We can either embed a little button that says listen now, they can listen right there. We can pump it out through social, of course, you know, just as an audio bar. One thing we found that has been really successful is to put a, um, a little call to action button within a related story. So for example, the client that I mentioned earlier, we could take one of their podcasts and embed the audio piece as maybe a middle of the article call to action to listen to this related content and just drive mm. people to that different media. It's all centered around that kind of hub concept that's always been around in content marketing. You take your one big piece and then you distill it out. But using that omni-channel approach, you're able to really tie it together and connect it and make it more of a journey instead of, whoa, we have 10 pieces. Look at all of these pieces that maybe you don't care about, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all at once. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of blam. Here's, mm-hmm. here's everything we have to say. Spray and pray. Take your pick. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, great. Uh, you wouldn't happen to be able to make me very happy and have some before and after numbers, would you? I could share those, but it is unfortunately something that the client prefers to keep private. We did, we did have an 800% increase in their call-ready leads. I can say that. And that is already very, very cool. And so in terms of personalization, uh, you know, that's one of my big things that I'm always asking people about and, and working on these days. Omnichannel personalization at scale. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the challenges or successes that you had? Yeah, and I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, Naz, when we were talking about the cost prohibition of some of these platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things like, there are CMS platforms like Drupal that allow you to personalize everything, and it's very module-based. It's very easy to upkeep because of the great community of developers out there and, and the different modules that come out all the time. But things like WordPress, which is a wonderful platform, don't get me wrong, the personalization just isn't the same and the opportunities to do that aren't the same. So with those kind of less enterprise or or even homegrown platforms that we encounter a lot with our organizations, we can really uh, help them with other strategies to personalize messaging, whether that's through using our Marketo license to personalize emails, targeting on social media can provide its own level of personalization, just depending on your goal and your audience, uh, targeting down to those demographics that are user submitted. And we can oftentimes give our audiences that cross-channel and interactive experience regardless of the technology that the client owns. I think that that's my, I guess that's my favorite part of personalization. It doesn't have to be this big site-wide, huge, expensive program. It just has to be tailored down to what that audience needs and wants in that moment of their journey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are you using then as a trigger to know where they are in their journey? A lot of the times we're using either data that our clients have provided that they've researched about their audiences. And so we know where they are in that funnel. Or, you know, we go to our audience team internally and say, what do we know about this segment that our client is hoping to target? You know, what, how often are they typically visiting a site before they um, engage with a call to action? How often are they visiting an email or, or what is the open rate? Maybe that's not the best channel to reach them using those tools to get to the channel first and then get to those, okay, here's how we're going to do these specific touch points. Do we reach out to them by name? Do we change the subject line? Do we change the imagery based on what this individual has told us that they like? Okay. Okay. It's, um, it's an interesting one with, um, there's a dependent, you know, data and personalization go hand in hand. Uh, I think that there's a, there's a difficulty because we have 
so much data, often so little insight. Um, and especially for those organizations who cannot afford to get their arms around their own data, uh, it can be a struggle uh, with personalization. I think it's, I think it's, we're making big progress, but I think it's still one of the big mountains we have to climb, you know, omnichannel, oh, sure. per, omnichannel personalization at scale. Even as a marketer, I'm still tickled every time I get a subject line from a brand that I that I like that has my name, and they're like, "Hey, Mariah, you haven't come to see us for you know three weeks or whatever. Here's a coupon code to use at our shop." And I just love that. If it's kind of creepy, like, "Hey, random person, you don't know us. Here's some money. You know, come get in our van." It, it just yeah. gets very creepy. You know, you have to do it right. You can't just do personalization just to do it. Like the push has been for the last couple of years. So we try to get our clients down to why do you want to do it. And then mm -hmm. what do you have available right now that you can keep doing it? Pro tip, pro tip. Um, that That's where customer journey mapping comes in really handy to, to say, where is the right point that we actually are going to leverage personalization to mm -hmm. the user's benefit as opposed to let's use IP data to change background images on our, on our landing pages. Like there's, you can do personalization anywhere, but mm -hmm. it's in it's in your customer journey map that you figure out where it's going to be useful. Okay, um, awesome. I this this time has been flying by. Uh, I, I I I can't keep you too much longer, um, but I do want to ask: Is there any uh, other resources that you recommend that the audience look out for for more about the kind of things we've been talking about today? You know, I always defer back to that person to person thing. I, I always recommend that you keep talking to other vendors, you know, partners that you work with, even competitors when that's okay. You know, if you are in a large market, there's always networking opportunities. Get out there, put your face out there and say, this is this is who I am. How are you helping your clients? How are you doing this type of project? Because you know, a lot of the times you're going to find, like you alluded to earlier, a lot of agencies and a lot of businesses that hire agencies are still looking at what can you do for me as opposed to what can you do for my clients. So you can get those learnings just by osmosis, getting out there and meeting people. And then, you know, considering that cross-channel, cross-industry methodology when you're mm -hmm. looking at your marketing. So if you are a B2B marketer, look at, look at the healthcare industry, for example. Take some mm -hmm. learnings from how they really personalize and are very thoughtful about their marketing and you can apply that to retail where it feels sometimes more number based more generic but mm -hmm. really take that kind of approach and be nice and be kind and be warm and see how that turns out for your brand i got to tell the audience that that was totally not at all planned or or um or um incentivized on my part but basically uh mariah you just plugged the heck out of coming to the conference. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that worked out for both of us. That worked out really well. So thank you very much for that. I would, ag uh, I would agree that getting out there face to face, and I would agree that looking across industries and across disciplines is an essential learning technique. We, ha we have so much to learn from each other uh, today, you know, because there's no job role. Uh, there's no specialism that does omnichannel experience on their own. It's, mm -hmm. it's designers, it's content people, it's IT people, it's researchers, it's, uh, it's, it takes a village. Got uh, great thought leaders from companies like Google, Accenture, Forrester, uh, Lullabot, Cisco, the European Commission, Real Story Group, and I didn't even get their logo on here yet, Autodesk, um, Margot Bloomstein, uh, Jeff Eaton, and, and other thought leaders beyond. So please, uh, please do check out omnichannelx.digital uh, and then also omnichannelx.com 
digital slash podcast for more great uh, content like this. Thank you so much, Mariah, for uh, uh, a lovely session and, and for donating your time today. Thanks for inviting me. It was wonderful. My pleasure. And I, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening. This has been the Omnichannel Podcast with Naz Rubina, founder of Rubina Consulting. Drop us a comment on our LinkedIn or Twitter and let us know what questions you'd like answered next time and who you'd like to hear interviewed. See you then.